Their business acumen is staggering. Their wealth is subject of envy. But behind the money, the notoriety, and the often unwanted attention, is a sense of purpose, to help those in need, to build a legacy they're proud of. This is a series that delves into the lives of those who give. This is The Philanthropists. This time on The Philanthropists, I'm speaking with Jonathan Goodman, Montreal pharmaceutical entrepreneur and a very generous man. He's been through a lot in life, but he sees it all as a gift. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Good morning. Great. And yourself? I'm good. I'm good. You know, in, in reading about you, there were so many interesting things. I almost didn't know where I wanted to begin. But I thought I'd begin with 18-year-old you. What happened when you were 18? Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was, uh, I was studying at the London School of Economics, and I was playing a lot of squash, and I hurt. I thought I pulled my groin, and um, I went home for uh, spring break, and doctor took my father took one look at me. I had lost 20 pounds, and I thought it was because British cuisine that was so bad at the time in the late 80s. <laughs> uh, and he took one look at me, took me to the Jewish General Hospital. Doctor uh, provided a uh, physical exam. Yes, it included rectal. Uh, and next thing I know, uh, I was admitted to the hospital and I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's. That's a moment a lot of people have in life where they hear a diagnosis. What was your reaction when they told you that? Uh, my, my reaction was, this is the only life we get. We have to make the most of it. And I was, I, my, my, when, when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, my parents opened a bottle of champagne because the cure rate is so high. So I knew it was just a process. And sometimes in life, we have to deal with, deal with crap in order to get to the promised land. And for me, treatment so was going to be a year, and then I was going to be fine. So you became very kind of clinical about it. You, you, you didn't find yourself falling into emotion. The worst thing one can do when facing adversity is to say, why me? It's, it, it's really to focus on what you need to do to get through and to live a normal, productive, healthy life. Hmm. I mean, that sounds great, but I, I know a lot of people, when they hear something like that, they just think, oh my God, it is me. And I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. What, you sound like you were sure that your your attitude would be the difference. Is that what, what happened? I was very fortunate that it was Hodgkin's disease. That would, they, they had the right medication to treat it. So I don't know if my attitude had anything to do with my, uh, my survival. Uh, but... Attitude was the only thing you can focus on. It's the only thing that you can control. And so when you're sick, you need to focus on what you can control and ignore everything that you can't. So when you came out of that, did, did it change the way you wanted to live your life in any way? You know, it did for a little bit, but then you forget. Uh, which is life. And you want to forget. You want to put adversity behind you. So mortality, I mean, 
it's a brush with mortality, right? And so sometimes we think we have all the time in the world. And then when something like that happens, it makes us feel like, well, you know what? I better get on with doing what I think I should be doing. That, that kind of push you into the entrepreneurship and, and, and the career path that you went on? Well, I, I got very lucky that uh, I went to, I did my law degree. My first year, during my first year of law school, I, I missed my first year of law school because I was getting uh, radiation in Boston and chemotherapy in Montreal. And I was lucky that McGill was the only school that didn't require an LSAT. And so I got into, the worst thing you could do when you're sick is nothing. And so I said, you know, during this year of treatment, I'm going to keep myself busy by going to law school. I had no intention of going to law school, but I went to law school and um, I, I, missed, I missed my first semester. Fine. Uh, I realized that you didn't have to, I didn't have to be in school to do well because I had just done it. And I excelled in law school, I excelled in mediocrity, uh, which, which at least, at least it was some distinction. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you end up going through law school uh, and your, your career path is anything but mediocre. Uh, but you, you, do, you wanted to be your own boss, is that right? I came, my, my father's an entrepreneur. He started pharma science, uh, third largest generic pharmaceutical manufacturing distributor in Canada. I love him and I love my brother who's older than me, PhD in pharmacology. I just couldn't work with him. And, you know, I don't know if you, kids with play dates, if you have three, there's always two against one. And I said, you know what? I can't, I can't play in the sandbox. And so I said, dad, you sell generic pharmaceuticals. I'm going to sell brand products. You make drugs. I'm not going to make anything. You do R and D. I'm not going to do any, you're private. I'm going to be public. So I started Paladin, my first company, when I was 28, just graduated uh, from McGill with my law degree and an MBA. And, and I said, I'm going to start this as a public company. We started at $1.50 a share, and 19 years later, we sold it for $152 a share, or a $6 million market cap at $3.2 billion. So it kind of worked out then, is what you're saying. <laughs> it, it did. You know, <laughs> mo most importantly, we helped Canadian patients. We, we, made, we touched people's lives. Uh, as an example, uh, we had one product that uh, I hope you don't know about it. It's called Plan B. It's the morning after pill. Uh, we brought that to Canada. And we brought it. And literally, I brought it as a mitzvah. I got a call from an epidemi epidemiologist in the States, Dr. Sharon Camp. She called me up from the airport and said that no oral contraceptive manufacturer would touch this product because it was either too small or too controversial. And I asked her, so tell me about it. And she said, this, this product works, it's safe, it's efficacious. And I, and I thought about it for a minute and I said, Sharon, I don't know if I'm gonna sell any, but I know that Canadian women have a right to this product. We're gonna make it available, but we're gonna make no commitments that we're actually gonna sell any. And sure enough, the mitzvah was rewarded because uh, several years later, we were doing $10 million in sales, generating about $6 million of gross profit. So. This brings me to another piece of you, which is where Tikkun Olam comes into your life and the effect perhaps your mother or your parents had on coming from a place of privilege, but making sure you did something with it. How, how were you shaped by their attitude towards Tikkun Olam and how does it work for you? My mother of blessed memory used to say, uh, 
we're not put on this earth just to take up space. We're put on this earth to make a difference. And my mother ne never said anything once. She said it thousands of times. And that, and both my parents led by example. My mother, I could remember dressing up uh, uh, for Purim as a Karen Kayemet box, a little blue box. Uh, <laughs> it, like we're, our house was always filled with volunteers. My mother described herself as a professional volunteer, dedicating herself to making a difference. And, and, and that, that's who I am. Tell me more about that. I spent 15% of my time over the last 29 years repairing our broken world. I've done everything. I've fielded the largest team in the province of Quebec for the Ride to Conquer Cancer, which is a fundraiser uh, to raise money for the Jewish General Hospital Cancer Research Program. Uh, uh, we have 100% participation in Centrade, employee participation in Centrade since the company's founding. Uh, when it comes to Sadaka, we punch above our weight. No one ever said on their deathbed that they should have worked harder. What they say is they should have spent more time with family, friends, and given back to community. That's what life is about. That is meaning. Mm. So when you think about things like Hebrew University and places that you donate, what is it that is the decider for you that this is worth that 15% worth that energy and this can wait? How do you figure out what to help with? Because I think for a lot of people, they see everything in front of them and think, I don't know, they're all good. I should help everybody, but I can't. So how do you decide what to help? Well, I, this is going to sound parochial, but I believe that only Jews give the Jewish causes. And uh, we, we, have, we, we have to look after ourselves. And so Hebrew University, so I'm working on a project at Hebrew University to allow Ethiopian Jews the opportunity to attend, to, to uh, receive full scholarships to attend Hebrew University. Uh, because it is only through, our people have shown that education is the best way to create equality to defeat racism. So for you really, it's, it's, it's about taking care of, of the Jewish community either here in Canada or internationally and being able to do something for them. There was something that happened for you. I, I, was it that when you got in your bicycle accident, was that when you went with your employees to actually celebrate the sale of the company? Is that what was happening? What was happening was we had just purchased a company. And to celebrate Ooh. the purchase, I took my management team for a celebratory bike ride in the Laurentians. And for a reason I will never know, I fell on my head. I, was, I entered into a five-week coma, had septic shock, had a C. difficile infection, had a pulmonary embolism, and had two heart attacks. I had a 90%. The doctors told my unbelievably supportive wife and patient wife, I might add that I had a 90% chance of dying. Now, or if living, I would be a vegetable. And while I like broccoli, I certainly didn't want to be it. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, they know more about Mars than they know about the human brain, or sorry, they know, more, they know more about Mars than they know about the human brain. And thankfully, the doctors were wrong. And while you never recover from a tra traumatic brain injury, I'm doing the best I can. And, and also, you don't have to be that smart to make money. And thankfully, I still have enough uh, seichel. 
So you just won't be put down, eh? I mean, like things can happen to you, and you just go anyway. Moving on, going to just keep going. This well, is the is only that? life we. This Why is the only life we get, Ralph. This is it. Uh, we got to make the most of it. We got to do our best. I like to say to people sometimes, life is not a rehearsal. If you're waiting for the big show, this is the big show. You're in it, right? A hundred percent. So how do you now pass that on? How does this work through you, through your charitable things, and and how does it work through your family? How do, how do you pass all this on? By by leading by example. I'm hoping that just like I saw my parents always have uh, community events at our house and do tons of volunteer work and tons of leadership positions. I hope my kids see me and my my unbelievably amazing wife do the same. And and we pass we pass that we pass that on as our inheritance. My mother my mother used yep. to say my mother used to say uh, leave your kids. Uh, she used to say leave your kids your values, not your valuables. And that, that's resonated with me. So what's in the future for you now as a, as a, a philanthropist? How, where do you see yourself going now? Well, firstly, I'm a drug dealer first. I sell pharmaceuticals. Mm. Uh, and that, that, that's my first passion, is to make people better through the medication that I sell. And with the funding, with the money that I raise from that, or, or I, I make from that, I should say, I, I'm going to spend 15% of my time and a lot of uh, financial assets to try and make a difference. And so I'm going to do more of the same. Find charities, find um, causes that speak to me where I feel I can make a difference and then, then use uh, my skills to, to affect that change. What advice do you have for people who are thinking about their Tikkun Olam? As in, so, at work, people say to me, one, of the, one, one sentence I say over and over again is, how hard can it be? You just got to start. It's, things are more challenging in your mind than they actually are. Just get out. Just do it. Yeah. It, you make it sound simple, and maybe it is. It, it, it is simple if you start. It, it, you know, when... when it, when I awoke from my uh, five-week coma, I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. Uh, I had to, I, I, I had to re, I re, had to relearn how to swallow. Like we could all learn new tricks. It's never too late to learn, and it starts with taking the first step. Well, I, I have to say, I, the, you seem to have not just a, a desire to do good but a, a real love of the, of the gift that we have of this life. That's what strikes me the most. Every day is a blessing and we can't waste time. It's a sin to waste time. Well, I hope I haven't wasted your time. I really appreciate you doing this with me. Absolutely. Jonathan Goodman, thank you very much for being with us. Well, that's it for The Philanthropist. I'm Ralph Benmergi. You take care of each other.